0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Our guest this week is an acclaimed author of a great chess book. He is a grandmaster, of course. He is one of the highest-rated Chilean players in history, I believe. And just for good measure, he just completed his math PhD. Uh, Mauricio Flores, thank you for joining us here on Perpetual Chess. Oh, Thank you. So Mauricio, your book is very popular on this podcast. So what I do on this show is I, every week I interview a different chess personality. Often they're very strong chess players. And every week, basically, we ask for chess improvement recommendations, which can include uh, videos or books. Um, and your book, I believe, is is up there with uh, Mark Dvorodzky and Jakob Augard in terms of the number of people who have spoken highly of it. And of course, I have read it myself and greatly enjoyed it. So um, what... I know that it's a couple years old, but why don't you begin by telling uh, our listeners a little bit about how structure, how the idea for chess structures came to you.
2: Okay. So I have been teaching for a while. I had some students who are kind of promising, dedicated, and I really wanted to help them learn. But one of the issues that I kept kind of running into with them is that they have some concepts like, okay, it's like open files are good, strong squares are good, pair of bishops. They have all these like little elements that they want to aim for, but they don't know which one is the important one in a given position, right? It's like if you have to decide what's more important, open file or, or pair of bishops, what's more important is it's a pawn really weak. And what I came to realize is that a lot of these recommendations that come from books lack context. So you have some idea, okay, but it's not very clear when it applies and when it doesn't and how are you supposed to make a decision in a new game? So I tried to find some sort of classification system that would allow me to put positions into categories and then say, okay, in this position, this and these are, are the most important ideas, and maybe this plan is going to work, and this one is just not going to work. It's not even worth trying. And, well, the, the, that's sort of the type of thinking that led me to, to decide to write this book.
0: And... And it's, it's an extremely useful book. One thing that I like about it is uh, more so than other chess books I've read, I feel like it's it's useful for such a a wide range of players. I mean, we've had players as high rated as I am Kostya Kowutsky, who's, you know, in 2400, who felt like he benefited from it. Um, and Alyssa Malikina, who's in, in the 2200. So pretty strong players who have benefited immensely from it. But when I read it, I also feel like, you know, 15, 1600 players who I teach can, can really benefit from, from the structure. So, um, why do you think it is that, that there've only been a few books, um, with this general theme?
2: I think the topic is relatively universal. And and uh, I think something that is kind of helpful. So I, I try to always point out what it is that I'm saying, right? So at the beginning of each book, I, I, I try to outline, okay, these are two or three things that you really are going to learn from this game. And then at the end, I try to make some additional remarks, like, okay, did you notice how this and this was like the important thing? So I think that that's helpful because... When people see that, then they realize, okay, so like this is like, it, maybe I, I don't understand all the details, but here's one idea that I really need to get. And, and I think that that was the, the most important thing in order to get the message across.
0: Yeah, and uh GM Oxo Bachman wrote the foreword for your book and he kind of his his foreword is also quite interesting in the way that he lays it out because he tells a story where w- when you guys got to know each other um you realized you had different learning approaches. Uh his was based on playing over games whereas you had sort of a a, a wider array of approaches reading books, analyzing game study openings and that you guys both learned from each other. So, how did you um how did you learn to sort of incorporate uh, GM Bachman's l- learning style and synthesize it into this book?
2: Well, so the the, the thing is uh, I noticed he had very good results, even though it's, it's, it's like, uh, I always felt like he had a very good understanding just by looking at games. It, it, it was something that it always kind of confused me. It's like, I'm reading all these books and all these things, but, but somehow I have a tendency, like, like the, the book is sort of born out of my own mistakes, but right? it's like I have a tendency to read a book, learn about a rule, and then I try to follow the rule every time I can. And then it, it, it like it doesn't work. It's, it's, it's like I'm constantly running into these problems. So it's like my opponent violates the rule I'm trying to follow, and he beats me very easily. Right. It, it, it's, it, it's because I haven't seen enough games. So, so this is... When I realized, okay, I really need to see more games because sometimes I'm applying things out of context. And, and you, you know, I basically incorporated this approach uh, out of need, right? It's like I, I, I'm losing because I, I, I'm not even aware of what's going on, right?
0: And were you at a certain level in your chest, like when you really noticed that? Do you recall when it was? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I was a GM. I mean,
0: you're already a GM.
2: <laughs> I mean, so I, I would say a lot of the things I wrote in the book I learned after becoming GM. Um, because the way that I became GM is um, I had some very kind of responsible opening preparation. and after that, I calculated very much. I, I the the thing is i I kind of grew up without a coach, right? So in order to become good, what did I do? i I read books which didn't always provide a lot of context because I mean, the coach is not gonna, like if you misunderstand something, the book is not going to tell you. Right?
0: Yeah, you'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you will never know, right?
2: And then I, I when, when I play games, I analyze them with an engine. But the problem is, um, you know, when you analyze with an engine, you're mostly kind of polishing your tactical ability, right? So I was very good at tactics. It's like I would play all these nonsense moves, but, but they would work tactically.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, I had very good tactics, very low understanding. And I had to revert that when I went to college, and the reason for that is that when I went to college, I, I was too busy studying. So I didn't have time to prepare the openings so thoroughly anymore. And I, and I wasn't in playing all the time. So my tactics went down. So I had to change my style because if you play positionally, that's compatible with, with, with a career, with, with college and so on. But if you play very tactical, very opening oriented, it's not compatible. So uh, I had to change my style out of necessity mostly, but, but it worked out very nicely.
0: That's really interesting advice because, of course, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are, you know, professionals in other fields. They're not full-time chess players, but they still want to get better at chess. And ironically yeah. enough, of course, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, but most guests, when we talk about chess improvement, they're always going to emphasize tactics. But for you, I guess, maybe because you are already so strong tactically, but it's interesting that you're, in a sense, advocating the opposite.
2: Yeah, no. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I should make a distinction with that. Tactics are fundamental, right? Like, it doesn't matter how good you understand. If you don't see, like, a double check, I mean, it's like, there's nothing you can do. But having said that, um, there are things that you can do to prioritize understanding over brute force calculation.
0: Uh, Such as?
2: Well, for example, I play D4 with white, right? It's like, I always play D4. E4, D4 or D4? D4. Okay. I never go into, into, like, checkmate attacks anymore. Like, I used to do that for a living when, when I was in, like, I don't know, sophomore in high school or something like that. that, that that's, every game I won was because I checkmated my opponent. Hmm. And every game I lost, I lost because the attack didn't work, and then I lost the ending, right? It, it was very systematic Mm -hmm. you can you can kind of choose your openings in a certain way you can i guess one of the things is when i was young because i didn't understand positional chess i was actively looking for ways to confuse the game Ah. right so i I was like if i saw a sacrifice i was (laughs) whether it was good or not okay i was gonna go for it because i had no other chance
0: Just out of curiosity, sorry to cut you off, but did you find that approach more fun? Like, did you? Oh, of course.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. It it was very. um, Okay, so let me tell you. Was it fun? I mean, sometimes it it depends, right? It's like when you are. When I was 1800, 1900, yeah, there was a lot of fun because I was playing against other people around around my same level. But. I would say when I got to IM level and I wanted to kind of move forward it became harder
0: mm-hmm. yeah and so and when, yeah, I was just gonna say not winning is not fun so if it becomes a hindrance it's gonna be less fun
2: yeah it's like you sacrifice you have fun for like 10 minutes your opponent neutralized <laughs> the attack and then, and then you, you you're bored for 3 hours until you lose the ending <laughs> right yeah so it, it, I can tell you it's much more fun when you have an attack that is based on good positional principle because then you are enjoying the game because it looks pretty. You know, it's like all organized, safe, but it's also a massive attack. And those attacks are much more beautiful,
0: right? Um, but, but
2: they they require more understanding,
0: right? Yeah, and so before we get back to the adjustments you made and how how to improve your positional chess, what when you became so strong tactically, you mentioned you didn't. You mentioned in, in the book and both mentioned when we were talking just now that you didn't have a lot of resources. You didn't have your own coach, and there weren't. Um, you know not that many strong players around you so how did you become so tactically strong
2: um well i mean are you i don't know if you're familiar with the city art uh, have you ever heard about that it's like a tactic oh yeah. Software. yeah yeah so i did city art from start to end like three times wow and uh yeah so it, it was a lot of tactics i i had i had some tactics books i mean it's like you you know, it, it, my resources were kind of limited, but uh, for, for example, I don't know, maybe one day I went to the street and uh, some people were selling books and just happened to be selling a tactics book. Okay, I buy the tactics book. Which, I mean, you can get for like $3 or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just did all of those. And then because I was a very tactical player, I mean, all my games were like some massive tactics training, right? Right. And then I was also always analyzing my games with engine. I, I analyzed my games Move by move. You, you know, some people nowadays, they analyze their games, but not really. It's like they they, they analyze the, the three most important moves. It's like, oh, okay, I blunder here. Oh, okay, my, my opponent could have beat me there, but nothing else. I analyze my games with engine move by move, and I check every single little tactical trick that the computer had. And these were low-quality engines by today's standards, but still helpful enough for me.
0: Okay. Okay. Um- and, and for listeners, just to make sure you caught it, the the resource that the GM Flores is referring to is called CTR. It's um a sort of an. A- kind of a precursor to the modern tactics trainers. And it often came on a CD and you could just load it up and it was just tactics problem after tactics problem. Um, and it went up to a pretty high level. The, the tactics got to be pretty challenging. So I'll put a link to that in the resources section where I list books that are recommended and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Mauricio, so you mentioned that you did a lot of training to get your tactics strong, but did you feel like you were naturally a strong uh, tactician? Maybe,
2: yeah, I mean, I was definitely stronger in tactics than just about anything else, but uh, yeah I, I guess
0: yeah, so you found visualizing to be fairly uh, intuitive as a young young player,
2: yeah, probably I, I I'm often kind of resistant to the idea of saying that you're like naturally good at something because I feel like anyone can become good at things but but maybe there is a little bit of some kind of talent or something,
0: yeah, that's a common sort of uh, thread that we pull on here on the show because some people. I mean, just how, how much chess talent influences results. I mean, clearly to me, uh, as, as someone who, who teaches chess, you see that some kids pick things up more quickly. But I do think that, that if you're not doing work, you're, you're not going to, you're, you're only going to go so far. So in, in when you were uh, a teenager and working your hardest on chess, uh, how many hours a day would you, would you spend on it?
2: About four.
0: Okay, that's a lot. And were you going to school as well?
2: Oh, of course, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, these days so, some of these kids are staying at home, so they they organize a schedule where they can study chess six, seven hours a day, uh, no. and, and squeeze in the schoolwork around. But I mean, we'll get to the fact that you know you're you just finished your PhD, so obviously that wasn't the case for you.
2: No, so so what happened with me was you know I grew up in a different time, right? Is a, a like I started playing chess in two thousand one. I mean, if you think back then. There were not a lot of things to do for fun. Um, my, my my parents really didn't. I mean, they, they were supportive of me playing chess, but they didn't push me to. They didn't like like actively encourage me to do something. Right? It's like, you, I, I, did it because I wanted to, and because I wanted to have fun with something, and I thought that that was interesting. And but but they didn't allow video games or or, or cable TV. So you know, okay, if you take away video games, cell phones, internet and cable TV, what are you supposed to do? Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Chess is looking a lot more
0: appealing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so I I, I don't know exactly what other kids did for fun, but, you know, I, I like to train chess every day.
0: Just out of curiosity, since I have kids myself, do you, are you grateful that your parents had those rules? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you think it was a good thing overall? I mean, certainly it's a, it's led to uh, some distinction in your life. I would say.
2: Well, I mean, I mean, chess made my life in some sense. I mean, like like if it wasn't for chess, I never would have been able to go to the US to study. I I also got my permanent residence through chess, right? So so that also made a big difference. It, it allowed me to stay. And it, it kind of shapes your personality, and, and I think in a good way. it Kind of gives me. Like an alternative source of income, like, like, uh, I have another job, but but if I wanted to just live from chess, I I could do it. And I I think it was good.
0: Yeah. And I think the theme of uh, the ability of chess to, um, to change, change one's life. I mean, to, to alter one's. Um, career prospects and geographical prospects is something that we haven't uh, I haven't touched on all that much in this show considering the the breadth of guests that I've had but I, I mean I do think it's important so um, could you tell us a little bit about how sort of so you're a strong young player in Chile one of the best players in the country even even as a teenager and you end up going to school in Texas but how did sort of the world expand for you how did you become aware of the possibility of a chess scholarship and how, how did you decide to pursue it
2: okay so um i had heard about it because axel got the like i i knew axel when we were like i, I met axel when we were 14 15 and well he was he, he's a year older than me so so he went to college in in, in the same university where i went to so uh, i became aware of that option but I wasn't, for some reason, it didn't quite click in my head. I, I was very focused on going to kind of a top college in in my country. But then when I was playing the Continental under 18, like, uh, you, you know, like a Continental Championship for 17 and 18 year olds.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, somebody from that school came, like he, he kind of came as a recruiter. And uh, he just told me like, okay, we can give you a scholarship. blah blah. blah. I just need to pass like an English exam and... You know, get ready, fill out some application forms, and then we can bring you in in six months. So this happened in, in July. And I, I found the opportunity very good, right? I, I thought it, it could, like, change my life in a good way. And then, uh, okay, m- maybe a week later, I was enrolled in an English course, and mm-hmm. I studied every day. Then I, yeah, six months later, I was in the U.S. And It happened very quickly.
0: And what was the adjustment like was it how did you find the us when when you came here
2: well i mean there are a lot of things i liked um well first of all uh, i came to college in the south of texas which meant a lot of people spoke spanish so the first few weeks i i really couldn't speak english even though i had got a decent score in the test i couldn't communicate Uh, Mm -hmm. like if there was a homework uh, i was not aware I missed a couple of deadlines because I didn't even know there were deadlines, right? And so, so my 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 standard phrase was, uh, you know, find someone who can speak Spanish and ask them to translate uh, at the end of the class. <laughs> Tell me if, if there is some, something that I need to do before the next class or something like that. So that that, that part was a little bit challenging, but, you know, not a big deal overall. I, I managed to adapt fairly quickly. And uh, generally, I, I like a lot of things about the U.S. Uh, I feel people in the U.S. kind of are sometimes criticize the country a lot it's like oh you know we have all these problems but you know if you go to other countries you, you see wow in the U.S. people in, in the U.S. things run so smoothly you know it's like everything works and you know everything is clean the streets the roads everything is beautiful even though you, even in like South Texas which is not a wealthy area of the country still it's much better than just about any country in South America
0: right yeah I guess that so, so gives you yeah. perspective
2: yeah, it's like the, the infrastructure is amazing. The opportunities, it's like the low unemployment. It's like the, the, the there is a much lower level of delinquency and all these other problems. And, you know, I can be coming back to my country every year. And when I look around and I see the streets, and, for example, in, in my hometown, you can't walk two blocks without seeing graffitis. Mm-hmm. It's like every uh, every house or every other house, somebody just buys a can like a spray can and they write their name in your house isn't that insane yeah like, like, like in the US you don't see this but, but in my country and it's been 10 years and this kind of habits is like a different culture and you, you know th- there were some things that maybe took some adjusting like uh, for for example in in the US there's a lot of like uh passive voice it's like it's it's, it's like if people want to discourage you from doing something they don't tell you they, right. they say something else and then you have to like infer what they meant mm-hmm. it is for me at first that was extremely confusing because it's like for example people ask you how are you it's like oh well you know i'm doing this i'm doing that it's like it, like, it actually means hello right?
0: yeah like, basically <laughs> people either say they're doing well or they're doing okay they never say oh everything's terrible
2: <laughs> like, but, 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 you know, sometimes it's like people ask me, how are you doing? I say, well, you know, I'm pretty stressed. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's about the worst you'll hear.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but, but you know, yeah.
0: So, I, I was a little bit, like, overly communicative.
2: Uh-huh. Like, saying too much. Because I, I, I didn't know, like, it's, it's like you need some sort of, like, dictionary to translate. Right, you know? like yeah. The, the literal meaning from the actual meaning. Yeah. And, and I think that that was the, the thing that took me the longest to adapt to, and then when I moved to Minnesota, I, I, I think I, I kind of really understood.
0: So yeah, and so there's a lot that I still want to talk about, including, as I mentioned, your your academic career and um, your involvement with the Pro Chess League for the Minnesota Blizzard. But before we get to that, how how did you make your way from Texas to Minnesota?
2: Okay, so what, basically, what happened is. After I got the GM title, I mean, I got the GM title after one semester in college. And after that, I decided, you know, now I'm going to focus on academics. And uh, at first I wanted to study engineering, but eventually I decided to study physics. So I studied physics for a while, and then I realized kind of, I really like math. You know, w- when I was in high school, I really wanted to study math. But, but in Chile, that's not really like an acceptable career choice, because it's like the unemployment for people who do math is too high.
0: hmm
2: so, okay, eventually I decided to do math and physics and started participating in some summer programs. I went to some nice schools like uh, MIT and UCLA where I did some kind of research, kind of, kind of like projects. And, and I had to kind of open my eyes to a new world and I decided that I wanted to go to grad school and then I just applied, right? I applied to many schools. I tried to find some of the top schools. Like Minnesota was, when I applied, it was ranked number six in the US for applied math. Maybe that's a little surprising because Minnesota is not that famous overall. But 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 you know that particular department was very good. So and, and I thought that I really wanted to do that, and you know I'm very happy with the decision.
0: And obviously the the weather's a lot different than than you're used to. Is that an issue for you?
2: No, no, no. I actually chose Minnesota for the weather a little bit. Oh really? <laughs> I mean, so, so the weather is tough, but uh, I, I thought. You know, I, I'm really just going to study, right? It's like that. That's the goal, right? Don't don't want to be too distracted.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's probably good for that then.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's uh, it's you get used to it. it. It's like maybe it took me a year. The, the first year was terrible. It's like I remember waiting for the bus twenty minutes with minus twenty Celsius.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that
2: doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> But, but, you know, you you get used to it. It, it, And and then, you know, we have a very good transportation system nowadays.
0: Uh, And do you you know if you'll be staying there? Well, I mean, I just took a job. I I will be a
2: data uh, data scientist at uh, Target. Oh, congratulations. You know, their headquarters are in Minneapolis. So I'll be there for for the foreseeable future at least
0: that's great i mean that really is a, a a great story to make your way from all the way from chile to to being a data scientist uh in, in minneapolis because of chess
2: yeah, yeah exactly yeah
0: i mean because of chess and your hard work i should say <laughs> well sure, yeah it <laughs> wasn't chess alone <laughs> um, yeah um, of course so speaking of chess uh, Mauricio, i want to bring it back to talking about your book and chess improvement but first we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor I'm excited to announce that this week's episode of Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable. If you're a regular listener to Perpetual Chess, you've probably heard me and our esteemed guests extol the virtues of Chessable even when they were not our sponsors. Chessable uses learning science to help you improve your chess as efficiently as possible. It's a great way to remember more ideas faster, even for a middle-aged dad like me. What's more, they're an open platform where anyone can publish their courses. I'm talking to you, chess teachers and coaches. And they paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars in commissions to their partner authors. They have big plans for 2019. So if you're a student, author, or coach, be sure to check out chessable.com. So Mauricio, one thing that we do on the podcast is listeners, of, listeners and supporters of the show can send in questions for the guests. And because your book is so popular, uh, friend of the podcast and supporter of the podcast and fellow chess teacher Brian Karen had a question about chess structures, which is uh, what are your thoughts on the other classic pawn structure books, Kamak's Pawn Power um, in Chess, Soltis's Pawn Structure Chess, and Shankin's recent Small Steps to Giant Improvement?
2: uh sure okay so i think mock's book uh, is uh, good I, I'm, I'm not very familiar with it L- like I, I have read some parts of it and, and i thought that it, it is good but it is a very different topic so in some sense you could say that commog's book is re- similar to shanklin's book
1: mm-hmm. in
2: the sense that it it, it talks about pawn structures kind of in an isolated way right it's like you say oh, okay these are kind of standard pawn breaks and ideas without necessarily referring to the middle game as a whole. You could say that my book is, uh, I think my book is much more similar to Saltice's book. And uh, so so when I was writing my book, I took a close look at that book. Because yeah. I, I thought that, that that would be where the closest comparisons could come in. And uh, I mean, with all due respect, I didn't really like Saltice's book. And, you know, the, the reason I didn't like it is uh, I felt like the examples were a little bit accidental sometimes. Okay. Which is something that I always try to avoid.
0: I've seen that so a lot I'm, in chess books. You feel like they have an idea and they kind of shoehorn something in.
2: Yeah, so for for me, so so, so something that, that I would say in general is I, I'm not particularly happy with with a large pers- percentage of books because I feel like they are talking about something and then somewhere somebody blunders and the game ends abruptly for some unrelated reason. <laughs> right. So, so it's like, and, and you know, a part of it is just you need to pick high quality games and you need to, you really need to check them with engine very thoroughly because, you know, I, and this is kind of my personal experience. But when I used to read books as a kid, I had this problem where I'm reading a book and then it's like somebody had a winning book and nobody talks about it. Or, or, or it's like the, the book is talking about something and the plan doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And they don't address that. And, and then I feel so frustrated because I have nobody to ask. It's like, what's going on? Is, is this idea correct or not? Right. And, and, and to me, I mean, that was kind of helpful in the sense that I, I just kind of check back and forth and try to and turn on the engine and then compare. And then it's like, and then I realized that the idea is like the entire topic of two pages ends in an idea that that is not a correct conclusion and that is just so frustrating right
0: yeah for sure so
2: for for me i mean something that i can tell you from my own personal experience is um the most important part of the book writing process is not the writing it's the selecting right it's like if you have if you have a bad example it doesn't matter how well you write right Like you can say them, you can have some beautiful explanation, but if the game doesn't support what you're trying to say, it's just a dirty example, right? It's 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 not a good example. And you know, actually, right now I'm writing more books. Um, I can't discuss too much because there hasn't been like an official announcement from the editorial, like about the topic and so on, but. Like, yeah, just just before we we talked today, uh, I was kind of looking at games and and I have been looking at games for months, just searching game by game until I can find something that actually conveys the message. Right. And I think that's the most important thing. You want to have a clean game and Mm -hmm. by a clean game, I mean, you want to have a game that illustrates an idea from beginning to end or or a series of idea in, in, in a clear way without serious blunders among good players right? So, so you can see how a game is supposed to progress without some accidental finish.
0: Yeah, that's got to be challenging. Um, no, it's extremely time- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's like, I, I start with databases of like
2: 50,000 games almost, like, like, like parse wow. that one by one, I mean, it's like
0: and yeah, and a lot of the games in these databases are not annotated. I mean, not that someone at your level well, necessarily, not that you need the annotations as much as some other players might, but it at least would point you in the right direction. And like, am, am I even on the right track starting to look at this game? But you sure, kind of, yeah. I'm guessing you kind of have to sort of start from scratch with a fresh mind for every game that you look at.
2: Yeah, yeah. and you look at the game and then you see, okay, here's an interesting idea. And then you check a little bit more and like, okay, here's a blunder. Okay, this game is not good.
0: And uh, something I wanted to, to, to follow up on from the introduction that Axel Bachman mentioned. So, of course, these are his words, not yours, but maybe you have an opinion, too. So he mentioned in the introduction that, you know, he, as you guys discuss in the book, he has the approach of he's just looked at, you know, a million games or whatever it is. He just circ- has looked at so many games that it's really informed his chess style. But he said he looks at the games pretty quickly. And he said that if you know what to look for in a chess game, you can you can learn value valuable lessons only spending a, a couple minutes looking at the game. So do you think that that is true? Do you agree with uh, GM Bachman about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what should we look for? <laughs> I mean, that, that that's the problem, right? It's, yeah, uh, that's the million dollar question.
2: I mean, it's uh, if you know what to look for, it's, it's, it's sort of like some people have the, like a bigger talent to extract the, <laughs> the main idea. But for example, uh, I, think that, I think that one way to narrow that down is when you study a certain opening, let's say you let's not talk in general. Let, let's say you're, you're trying to prepare an opening for a specific opponent. You know the first ten moves, and then you search for games. So you filter the top games, and then you look at people above 2500 or something like that, and then you you browse through and you see the plans. I mean, maybe you you can just pay attention. Okay, what plan did they go for? How did the game get decided? And then you maybe turn on the engine at the same time so that the engine can quickly point out if the game is sort of clean or not like for example if a certain idea won the game or a certain idea actually won just in an accidental way right yeah but 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 yeah it, it's not like super trivial but but it's something that you can acquire with practice but um so so the books i'm writing kind of the, the goal is to kind of provide a good collection of games so that you can eliminate that need in some sense
0: yeah and and again I you know I recommend this book highly I mean I really think so players of so many levels can benefit from it and I I look forward to seeing seeing what else you're cooking up I'm I'm impressed you're able to find the time between your math phd and and starting your job soon that's uh, admirable
2: Well I mean it's like uh, I have yeah I mean it's like I have six weeks <laughs> between <laughs> between one thing and the other so I'm I'm trying to make the most out of that time and then you know on weekends
0: Wow, that's uh that's impressive.
2: Yeah, I I mean uh, I think one of the keys is uh, you really need to find some kind of purpose, right? Uh, I think that that's very important. And maybe it has a little bit to do with upbringing as well cuz you know because I uh, my parents didn't allow so much like cable or like they never bought me a cell phone for example. Like I mm-hmm. like I graduated high school without ever having a cell phone. So I uh, I have a little bit less appreciation for for spending my time doing those things, because I feel like I could do other things that could be better for me.
0: Yeah. So kind of the academics mindset where you can just, you know, shut the door, stay off the internet, and get work done.
2: Yeah, because I mean, for me, some things don't really feel like work. That's the other thing. Especially like like writing the book. It doesn't really feel like work. It's a, I mostly do it because it's. It's interesting. It's, uh, the, the games are kind of nice to watch.
0: Yeah. And uh, what's going on with your own chess game? Do you get a chance to play much? I mean, it doesn't sound like you would from, from all of the demands on your time that you've described. Oh, no, no, no.
2: Uh, I don't really get a chance to play. I have thought about, like, playing, for example, the, the Chess Olympiad or things like that. And, and I could kind of, kind of represent my team, but the problems I would have to take, like, Two and a half weeks off from work, and then, if you do that, then it's kind of, I don't know. That, those are all your vacations, right? It's like,
0: yeah, and I imagine you you have played for Chile in the past in Olympiads. I played three times, yes. Uh, so we've and, had, uh, yeah. I was just going to say we've had a lot of a uh, lot of guests kind of rave about the experience.
2: Is that a good thing?
0: or? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, they just really just enjoy the camaraderie and the, the team nature. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a very nice event. It's a, you get to see all your friends that you haven't seen. Like, for example, I mean, you go to Olympia, you, you see people that you have known since you used to be 12 years old, right? It's like, right. It's a nice experience, but it comes with a big cost. Yeah. And right now, I, I can't – it's not so much that I don't have time to play. It's like more like I don't have the time to travel
0: right because the
2: traveling adds like an additional three days
0: yeah maybe um i i guess they probably um we don't know where the next one will be yet but maybe maybe you'll be able to make a comeback in uh (laughs) 20 in 2020
2: oh yeah but but, um you you mean as far as location
0: uh yeah i just meant we don't know where the next olympiad will be maybe the travel won't be won't be as onerous but i mean also of course you'll be working full-time um, That's the
2: problem. It's like you have to sacrifice your, your a year worth of vacations.
0: Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, the, the United States has has, as you mentioned, it has some benefits that maybe uh, us Americans take for granted, but the amount of vacation time is not one of them.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, I mean, in Chile we have the same. Uh, I think it's the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. The The only people who can really go to Olympia are people who who don't necessarily have another job. Yeah. And um, that's a big requirement,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah that that is, <laughs> yeah, especially um as as you get older, I mean you're you're twenty nine so you're sort of finishing up your schooling and reaching a stage where yeah the the career takes priority, like it like sure, it or yeah. not <laughs> um, so uh you do so you mentioned you don't get to play much, but you have been a member of the Minnesota Blizzard. Shout out to the pro chess league, so are you gonna be doing that again this year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh, you see, so because the, the advantage there is that you don't have to travel. Yeah. So so you you can play some good chess, but you don't have to go anywhere. It's like, that's very convenient. And uh, I hope to continue playing, right? We are lucky to have some kind of, maybe by random chance or something. We, we just happen to have some very good players in Minnesota.
0: Yeah. So who's on? I mean, I know in the past you guys have had Wesley So at times, uh, John Bartholomew, um, Sean Nagel uh do you have um uh the the one minute wizard um (laughs) drawing a blank on his name who's going to (laughs) yeah thank you andrew tang uh is is he still going to be representing minnesota yeah wow so is there anyone i'm missing from the team um
2: well i mean this year we we have also fidel corrales he he's originally from cuba i believe he lives in uh, st louis or something but he will be playing for us, so that that's very nice.
0: That should be fun. And and so when you when you get to play for the Pro Chess League, are you able to do much preparation? I try, yeah,
2: because because I'm afraid of you know losing, and, yeah. and then and then ruining the the team, right? Right, yeah, that's the worst part. You, you, <laughs> you really feel guilty about this, yes. Yeah, I, I remember last season there was a match where I scored one point out of four. Oh my god. <laughs> And it wasn't for lack of preparation. I just blundered.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we, we've all, maybe not on that stage, but we've all been there in terms of blundering and, and letting teammates down. So how are your 15-minute skills? As a, Do you feel like that's a good format for you, or are you better at slower time controls? Uh,
2: no, I, I think I'm pretty decent with that. Um, not because of my tactical skills, but because uh, I think over the years I have developed good understanding.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah, because the, of that, the work you've I, done, I think I'm, I'm able to make reasonable decisions without having to think.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the, the ultimate goal. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's, I've recently become more aware how it's, uh, it's almost it's better to be a positional player than a tactical player in the fast time controls, because uh, like the, like Magnus being the best in the world is an example of that, although obviously he's good at everything. Yeah, I think he's more good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not the best comparison. Um, so anyway, Mauricio, when I, when I emailed you, I mentioned that one thing we'd like to talk about is, uh, you've already mentioned a few chess books, but favorite chess books and favorite games of yours and favorite games of all time, just a little bit of uh, homework for our, our listeners. So what can you recommend or highlight for, for us? Sure.
2: Uh, I think I should talk more about books. Okay. Uh, well, in, in general, in terms of books, uh, I really like Quality Chess. Like Me as too, an editorial, yes. uh, I think that they have decided to take chess writing to a kind of to, kind of to a very different standard, and it's a standard that, in my opinion, is not matched by anyone. Perhaps with the exception of Boretsky, who, for some reason, never published with them. So. Within quality chess, for example, something that that I really like is their grandmaster repertory series. Because one problem that I always had when I was a kid, you know, the way that I studied books is I would kind of take the book and put it into the computer. And like move by move, check it with the engine, see if it makes sense or not. And I often have this problem where they say that a position is advantage, but it's not. And, And, you know, as white, I want to get an advantage. And if right. I don't, I mean, it's like I'm very upset by that because it's like you, you you waste time reading the first 20 pages and then suddenly the recommendation that they give doesn't work. It is obvious that it doesn't work. And, you know, to, to some extent, it's unavoidable because you, you can't win with white every time. But I feel like, uh, for, for example, Abrux, um these four books are very good. Virtually every line they offer is advantageous for white. And uh, I would make a similar comment about Nagy's 1E4 books. I'm not as familiar with those books, but I think that they're very good. As far as middle game or ending books, uh, I think, let's see, Marin's book, Learn from the Legends, is a very solid book.
0: Who's the author? M- Mikhail Marin.
2: Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, his book, Learn from the Legends, is very good. And I often try to teach some of that material to my students. And let's see. Beyond that, there's a book on endings by by De La Villa. It's like 100 fundamental endings you must know. It's yeah. it's not like a super interesting book because it's kind of kind of a flat topic in some sense, but it is useful. It, yeah, it's super good important. It,
0: yeah, it, and that's it's, another it's one that's good for right. Yeah, and good for many levels, which is many level play. Yeah, player.
2: exactly. I mean, it's like I teach this book to 1,500 players, but I also use it to review myself, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Um, And that one is available on Chessable, which is a good way to learn it. And the books that you mentioned, I mean, I don't know about all of the ones you mentioned, but a lot of the uh, quality chess books, including your own, are available on Forward Chess, which is always a nice way to review a book. That's how I've been going through your book, because it's nice, because as you mentioned, you can turn on, I mean, it's easier to cycle through the moves, but also you can turn on the engine or leave it off, which is quite helpful, because I mean, I agree with you, especially the older books, uh, older opening books, people would just, if they're going to write a book about an opening, they're going to say it's better. And they're they're going to say the position is better if you're white and equal if you're black, but yeah. these days these days you can't get away with it as much.
2: Yeah, exactly right. It's like the, the engine is pretty objective, and the other thing is people like to say that you know engines don't understand chess, which is kind of true in a technical sense, but not really. Uh, I feel like people who used to kind of accuse the engine saying that the human intuition is still necessary, is is not really true anymore. Like. Yeah, and it's... chess engines have made so much progress in recent years. that so Nowadays, the only thing that an engine can't really understand is the practical component. And by practical component, I mean, for example, you're playing a game, and uh, you have to make 10 unique moves in order to survive. The engine will say draw, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but in practice, you're, you are going to lose, right? Because nobody yeah. can, can be that precise. But... Yeah, so, so that, that, that's perhaps the only aspect in which an engine is inaccurate. But it's not their fault, because, I mean, you know, the engine can always find the move.
0: Right. And have you had time, when, I know you've been hunkered down with you finishing up your PhD, but have you had time to track sort of the Alpha Zero story as it unfolds? Or have you been able to check out any of its games? I've
2: been checking a little bit about that, because you see, my, my PhD is, is on machine learning, which is sort of closely related to, the, to that type of work.
0: So and so, what's your overall impression? Well,
2: uh, I think uh, Alpha I Zero is amazing, right? So, but yeah. I, need to, uh, I want to look deep down because you you see, uh, it, it's kind of related to my work. So I, I want to kind of try to understand the maths behind the algorithm. Yeah, because you you, you see, for example, I mean, Stockfish is already very good. So what what's really the difference between Stockfish and Alpha Zero? The difference is that. Inside Stockfish, you have formulas that that calibrate the engine to calculate. So so you you tell them okay like if this is going on then like if the king is unsafe you assign this score and if this is going on you assign a score and then that's how they make decisions. But the beauty of Alpha Zero is that Alpha Zero doesn't need that. So so you 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 have yeah. an engine that can make all those decisions without any sort of human interaction without. Some expert behind the scenes telling the engine what to think.
0: Yeah, it's it's incredible. And, and that that
2: is the fundamental um, difference because if you can have that, and you can beat humans in Go and chess, you can apply the same to other board games, and then you can like the amount of applications and that that that's huge, right? And 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 then just thinking about what the next wave of applications will be is very interesting, just in terms of maybe medicine or things like that.
0: Yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting times as we move forward. I mean, both uh, I mean from a chess perspective, you know, Matthew Sadler has and uh, Natasha Regan have their book coming out in January about AlphaZero and you know, they've started to to release some videos and they did an article I saw on New in Chess um, highlighting things we can learn from AlphaZero, but of course, as this information is slowly disseminated, I feel like we're just scratching the surface and I'm really interested to see how it impacts play. I mean, for for kind of uh, you know amateur players like me, but also at the top level, how like I feel like there could be a, cor- a sort of rat race to to apply the ideas or attempt to that that uh, Alpha Zero is demonstrating.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting times. It's kind of scary as well because I mean, at some point, you know, you, Alpha Zero plus computer computer power is like the end of chess in some sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It could be, you know, could be the end of many things. So, uh, sure. Bianca, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you never and know. The, Hopefully not. Though. But then the, the question is how fast is it going to happen? And I think
2: what people sometimes don't realize is that a lot of these things are not linear. They're exponential. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the fundamental idea is, is uh, a society that is more evolved has more tools to evolve faster. And if you keep that in mind, then you realize, well, really, it could be 10 years, right? Or less. Wow.
0: Yeah. Crazy.
2: It, 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 like, things <laughs> Crazy can change at a speed that, that we can't quite understand, right? And and, and, and that's sort of the, the interesting part.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it'll... You're making my head spin. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: okay, but uh, that, that's something uh, I, I think about because m- more because of my field of study than, than because of my involvement with chess in particular.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, chess is just sort of a laboratory in this case. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, so Mauricio, I think I just have one more topic, if you don't sure. mind. I saw that uh, I mean, you mentioned in... Um, you mentioned in chess structures. You one of the games that you highlight is your own game with Wesley So from 2012. So he was only 18 at the time. Uh, it seems like he was around number 100 in the world, not quite at the level he is now. But but what have your experiences been with playing sort of the most the the strongest players in the world? What, have you had any other encounters against players who who went on to attain that sort of uh, strength? Um, well, I mean, when I was 14, I played against Bashir. Oh, wow. Uh, I actually, That's uh, Maxime Bashir, actually, Glove, I drew yeah. Bashir. <laughs> oh, awesome. He drew
2: Bashir. Oh, awesome. He might not remember. It, it was not a very memorable game for him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if you see him, I'm sure you'd be sure to remind him. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw him a couple of months ago, but I, I didn't remind him.
2: Maybe next time. <laughs>
0: okay. Classy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because we were playing this kind of world youth, and uh, he, he ended up finishing second after Lenderman. It, it was, uh, it, we were in France in 2005, and he finished second by half a point. Mm-hmm. Like, like, if he had beat me, maybe he would have been, like, the world champion. But, wow. uh, but well, it, um, it doesn't matter, because then he went on to become, like, number two in the world at some point, and, you know, but perhaps man. things fall into perspective. It's not that important anymore. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's you know something you could tell your grandkids about someday. Yeah, sure. <laughs> especially, especially if he becomes, especially if he becomes world of champion. Course. And uh, and uh, have you gotten a chance to analyze with players like that?
2: Yeah, not very frequently. Um, but something that I can tell you kind of in general, which is a feeling that I get when you play somebody like that much higher level, is that maybe you talk about something, and it sort of feels like they are thinking in a different kind of wavelengths sort of is like they're like something that you think is like central. Maybe they they just say, okay, well, yeah, that's like obvious, right? It's like, right. But the the other thing that that I would say is I feel like you get to 2,500 by learning new ideas from 2,500 and above is mostly about opening preparation and extremely good calculation. Hmm. Like, I I, I don't think, like, I don't think I really need to learn that many new things. Like, if I wanted to reach a higher level, it would mostly be about being able to show up to the game and never blunder or blunder very infrequently.
0: And do you feel like your calculation skills are, like, are they close to being good enough or would it take a lot of work and oh, you know no, would do you feel like in work. a different like,
2: like if I wanted to go like from my level to like a 2800 I think that 90% of the difference is in calculation wow yeah it, it's not really knowledge it's not having seen more games less games it, it, and it's not really that I can't calculate my, my problem is that of course it, yeah. it, it's not really that I can't calculate the, the problem is that I get tired it's mm-hmm. like why do people of my level lose? Is because at some point it's crazy. You've been thinking for two hours and then you, you make a decision and then instead of thinking, you think, eh, it's probably correct. Just play it. Right. right. Because it's like you're exhausted. I mean, you have to save your energy. You, you can't analyze everything in depth. And that's why you lose. Because oh. occasionally it's like you're too tired. You don't want to think too much. So rather than th- making a hard decision that requires a lot of thought, you make an easy decision. And because of that, maybe a game that you could have won and ends up being a draw or maybe occasionally you blunder something like, like, like some deeper blunder, like a maybe, and, and you know, the other thing that is funny is the, the definition of blunder has sort of changed, right? It's like nowadays that, the, that there are these engines is like you have this kind of 1500 level players who are watching a game yeah. and they say, Oh, somebody blundered just because they played the, the third best move.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. They they see the evaluation lose a point, and that's automatically yeah. a blunder,
2: <laughs> even though the <laughs> move looks perfectly fine. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah so,
2: so when I say blunder, I mostly mean like you you calculate something, and maybe three moves down the road, something that you thought was going to work
0: doesn't. Yeah. Um. So. If you were just one last question, Mauricio, in, in an alternate universe, if you decided you know you're you're not going to take your job um, after all, you're going to put pour everything into chess and try to try to reach the level, try to ascend from twenty five hundred to like the the highest heights, make the best improvement you can. Like, what would you do? What steps would you take concretely if you were just going to go all in playing chess?
2: I would travel. I, I would go playing.
0: That's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what about, the st- what about the study aspect? I mean, you've mentioned your approach for studying games. You're studying your own games is quite rigorous. Yeah. Um, what would you do to improve your tactics, your calculation? I
2: mean, so in my opinion, you improve understanding and openings by studying your own games. You improve tactics by playing. And, mm. well, I mean, playing in a rigorous way, right? It's like playing, playing and right. analyzing after and being self-critical and so on. Like playing seriously, and I don't know I also don't mean playing blitz. I mean like playing slow games, and you know that that's kind of hard. But but as I was telling you, yeah, like in my perception, what, what differentiates like these twenty seven and twenty eight hundreds from me is not so much the understanding as much as it is the the ability to calculate under pressure for extremely long amount of time, hmm. and that that's why my, my first answer is I would just travel
0: just travel and just well, play you, you have and, to
2: travel you know. but yeah but play high level tournaments one after the other as much as
0: you can makes sense <laughs> yeah
2: it's, it's maybe not <laughs> a very satisfactory answer because you are trying to look for some way to improve right
0: <laughs> i mean not not me personally i've given up at least <laughs> at least for the moment but uh but yeah i mean people certainly are but i mean you know, we get plenty of improvement advice. It's also interesting to hear your perspective specifically because, I mean, I think even a lot of people looking to improve are not going to be looking to jump from twenty five hundred to twenty seven hundred. They just want to improve at their own level. But it's, it's interesting sure. to, to, to hear what it at takes their,
2: at their own level. Let, let's say uh, somebody in the eighteen hundred level. So how can you improve at that level? I think you read some good books, you analyze your own games systematically, and you learn some opening deeply. Something that I really don't like is that people do a lot is they they play to surprise. It's like they they learn five openings and then they just try to surprise the opponent and they try to learn some tactic or some trick. I don't think that that's good for long-term improvement. I I always advocate, like with my students, I always advocate for learning one opening very deeply Mm -hmm. and that works well. Like yeah. my, my students do very well with that and they, they just increase because they, they begin to learn all the tricks and all the deep ideas and they accumulate experience and then it's like they, they can remember it's like okay I played this idea against this player it didn't work or maybe it worked but then I made a mistake next time I'm not going to make a mistake. It becomes overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good, good practical advice. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to memorize every move of theory, but just like you, you kind of, it becomes like a language that you can speak when you have enough games under your belt in a given opening. Exactly. Cool. Well, Mauricio, this has been great. Um, I really, I want to thank you for your time. Um, and wish you continued success with your job and the Minnesota Blizzard and the Pro Chess League and your book. I would, if, if when this book comes to fruition, I would love to, to have you back to hear about it if you're up for it. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Um, and if anyone would want to reach you, is there a way they should do so? I don't know if you have time to give lessons or if you're available for any, any so feedback or.
2: I have my email is uh, gm.mauricio.flores. Uh,
0: Okay, so I'll I'll link to to your email in the show description as well as your book recommendations and CTR and all that stuff. So thanks again, Mauricio. Good luck um, and safe travels back to Minnesota. Okay, okay. Thank you. Special thanks to Matthew Passy, the esteemed producer of Perpetual Chess. I also want to thank Geert van der for supplying the intro music. And thanks to everyone who helped spread the word about the show, whether it be via social media, positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, or just telling a friend about the show. Every little bit helps the show grow consistently. But most of all, I want to thank people who chip in and help support the show financially. You guys have heard me say I put a lot of time and effort into this show between researching the guests, reading the books of the guests, lining up the guests, all the promotion online. It adds up to probably about five hours a week. I love the work, but it wouldn't be possible without financial support. So, Thank you most of all to Chessable.com and I want to give thanks to the following individuals and entities for their generous support. Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Verancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, Bill Moran, Brett howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Woods, I am Christoph Zalicki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of US Chess, Daniel Naylor, Daniel D. Schaefer, Daniel Viney, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Agard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Banastia, James Millick, Jason Wollum, Jeff Anderson, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I.M. Kostya Kovyutsky, Krishna Krishnan, Laura Belyovsky, Lorraine Dore. Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habish, Matthew Tedesco, my main man, Moonmaster9000, Nate Sotland, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Posse Pasanen, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grajalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Ryan Stone, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, the law office of Stuart Katz, in case any of y'all are in legal trouble, uh, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Kasper, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and the last person in the alphabet, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you all next week.
1: Chumba, ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase. Necessary. By law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.